Father, we praise you this evening for the wonderful opportunity of studying your word, Lord. Thank you, Lord, because you desire those to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you, Lord, because tonight we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are just living in your truth. Father, we praise you, Lord, because we can meet here on this hillside, Lord, and not just on the hillside as the woman of Samaria was, this hillside, and we can come and praise and worship you. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, because in the Old Testament, the shepherd who kept his sheep kept his sheep for one purpose, for sacrifice for his sins. But you, the great shepherd, have died for your sheep. Father, in the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. With us, the shepherd has died for the sheep. Father, I just want that, that thought before us all the time. Father, we want to live lives that are glorifying to you at all times. We want to be in that place, Lord, where your Holy Spirit moves and guides us every single step of the way. Father, we pray that we might come into a deeper walk yet than we have ever tasted before, just to a place where we might love you more and praise you more and worship you more and have lives that just shed forth the glory and the knowledge of Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <coughs> praise the Lord. Well, we come tonight to a slightly different change of subject, a slightly different subject anyway. So far, we've been dealing with salvation. Now, I hope that tonight you're sitting uh, a little more assured than you were, say, ten weeks ago when we began the course, or thereabouts. Um, I hope tonight you're sitting knowing that you're saved, rejoicing in your salvation, knowing that you have not committed the unforgivable sin, knowing that you are eternally safe, and that your salvation doesn't depend upon you. Because, you know, there should really be nothing uh, like a worried Christian. In fact, a worried Christian seems almost an absurd statement when you have a Father in Heaven who is Lord of all the universe. How can you be a worried Christian? Because He loves you. And what shall separate you from the love of God? I hope tonight, too, you've got quite a good knowledge of atonement and redemption and expiation and regeneration and the fact that uh, your good deeds were meaningless before God and that he's imputed to you his righteousness that you're in Christ and all these other wonderful truths because we're not going to touch them again the barrier's gone, it's down the only message we've got of course is the gospel message if you tonight are here without uh, Jesus in your life, without hope we want you to know that God loves you and that he died for your sins that Jesus had you in mind personally when he went on that cross to die and there's nothing you can do that is too great for him you see if it was too great for him then it would mean that his love for you was too small and his love is so great it's unbelievable he died for every sin you can commit you have committed or that you can even dream of committing he died for every sin in your life because he loved you and all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because just as the jailer who asked Paul, what can I do to be saved? The message came loud and clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And it means that in this moment of time, you can say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I can't help myself. So I, I ask you to come into my life. I want to be born again. I want to be one of your children. And once you've taken that very little step of faith, you are, are a child of God. Tonight, that's salvation. We're not dealing with salvation tonight. I'm going to assume that we have believers here tonight. 
We're on to something else. We're going tonight to deal with the question, how can a believer stay in fellowship with God? Now, it's an important one. And it's very important that we're not confused. <clears throat> Sin in a believer's life cannot make you lose your salvation. Your salvation doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what he's done. And that's the meaning of grace. By grace we mean undeserved merit. The fact that God died for you while you were yet a sinner. It's as easy as that. And I think tonight's subject can be expressed in the phrase found in Amos 3.3. Don't turn to it. It merely says this. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now notice it doesn't say, can two walk together except they be related? If it said that, that would be salvation. You see, until you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are, are not related to God. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as we learn from Galatians 3.26, you become a son of God. The question is not, are you related? The question is, are you agreed? Can two walk together except they be agreed? One thing we know about God is that he never changes. And he hates sin. He hates sin. So can you walk down the road with God, with sin in your life? And the answer is no. There is no agreement between God and sin. Now I'm not talking about salvation. Sin does not make you lose your salvation. What it does make you lose is your fellowship with God. Sin in a believer's life cuts you off from your fellowship with him. Now that's the important thing. It does not cut you off as far as your relationship with God is concerned. You are a son of God. You always will be a son of God if you've believed on the Lord. Tonight we are dealing with fellowship. And it's very important. Now, if Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, how come that a sin in a believer's life can get you out of fellowship with God? Jesus died on the cross for every sin that you could commit. How come then that your sin still affects your relationship with God? Well, the answer is that when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the legal requirements. He died and paid the penalty for sin. But you still have the family business to settle. I think if I tell a little story, I can uh, explain that a bit more simply. Uh, newspaper men are a very odd breed, and in America, a couple of newspaper men found a very odd circumstance indeed. It concerned a man who was a judge, and the man's son had done something wrong. He'd gone against the law, and the police had arrested him. And the son had to come up in his father's court now, the newspaper men were intrigued. They thought, now, I wonder whether this is going to be a fair trial, or whether that judge will let the son off just because he's his son. So they went along, and they lined the courtroom, <clears throat> and the trial got underway. And in fact, at the end of the proceedings, the verdict came back guilty. The judge said, you are guilty, and I fine you 200 pounds. Well, the newsmen were very thrilled. They were going away. They were going to write and say, this judge is completely fair. He even finds his own son. But then an odd thing happened. The judge took out his own checkbook and he wrote a check for 200 pounds. He ripped it off and handed it to the court. You see what he'd done? He paid the legal requirements for his son's sin. 
And the newspaper men went home and said, that's fantastic, the father has paid for his son's misdemeanor. And they thought that was the end of the case. And so it was, until the son got home. <laughs> now, that's really what we're talking about tonight. <laughs> when Jesus died on the cross, he completely wrote a check to cover all of your sins. And that's fine, until you get home. Because your father in heaven treats you as a son. And what son among you is there who has not been disciplined by his father? And if you have a sin in your life, because you are saved, he's going to discipline you. You see? Now, does, has God provided completely for you? Has he provided completely? The answer must be yes. Millions of years ago, before the earth was established, God knew that you would sin. He knew it. Therefore, his salvation had to be big enough to cover every sin that you could commit. And it's true of believers too. 1 John 1, 9, which is a subtitle for tonight's talk. <laughs> if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Completely covers your sin. Now, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 before we go any further. Let's have a look at the discipline of the Father. If you get out of fellowship through a sin, and you do not confess your sin before the Lord, he will discipline you. Not because he's a taskmaster, not because he's horrible, but because you as his child need discipline and need training. And Hebrews chapter 12 deals with just that subject. Hebrews 12 and verse 5. And ye have forgotten, he says, the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, says the Lord, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Despise it not. Now, if you despise something, you really say, I am not accepting this, I am not knuckling under. I refuse to give way on this point. I won't have anything to do with it. I'm going to fight. That's what you're saying. And I know many Christians who are miserable because they are fighting against God. God is trying to tell them something about their life. He's trying every way possible. And all they're doing, they're kicking against the goads. You see, what is a goad? Go a goad was a long stick with a metal tip on the end which was used to get wild ox in control. You see, and a wild ox used to come in kicking and mo using its horns to get its own way. And this man used to stand at a great distance and he used to kick it, um, prick it, I mean, in the side with this goad, you see. And that's what the father does to you. You, in your natural state, are just like a wild ox. You kick, you won't give way, you will not give way to the Lord. Your heart is so deceitful, you're a fighter and you're going to fight to the end. But God isn't using any energy He's just got a big goad, and he's giving you a few pricks, you see. And no matter where you go, you can run away from the Lord. He's going to get there, get there, and he'll carry on, he'll carry on, and he'll carry on until you are willing to say, God, I was wrong. Now, that's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If you confess your sin, all you've got to say is, I'm wrong. And immediately he says, good, I can put my goad aside. And he lays it aside. So, despise ye not the chastening of the Lord. And it goes on. Nor faint 
when thou art rebuked of him. Now, that's another one that hits Christians. They say, I can't take it. You see, it's too much. It's too far. You see, and it never is. Because God, who is your father, is omniscient. He knows exactly how far to go. And he knows exactly how bad your misdemeanor is. You see, and he's the perfect judge of it. And he will discipline you just right. Until you are willing to say 1 John 1 9 when he says at last. You're back in fellowship. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If you are being dealt with by the Lord, it proves that he loves you. Again, Christians often say, I don't believe the Lord loves me now, I don't feel it. And sometimes I say to them, well, are you feeling, feeling punished by the Lord? And they say, yes, I am. And I can turn to the scripture and say, therefore, he loves you. You see, would you really love your son if your son was messing about and you weren't disciplining him? I, as a teacher, meet children like that every day. And I see just how lost those children are. Those parents have not done their children a service. They have done them a great disservice. And they love the lessons where there is a discipline imposed upon them. They know where they are. And that's why I rejoice even when I'm being disciplined by the Lord. It's wonderful. He loves me so much. Oh, it's thrilling. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers in our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? You've got to be in subjection to him, subjected to his will. So it's no longer you that live, but Christ that lives within you. And if Christ has his sway in your life, there'll be no opposition against God's will. Because Jesus, when he was on the earth, always did the will of his Father. And the Holy Spirit is inside you to reveal Jesus. And do you know what, what that Jesus is going to be like? It's going to be utterly defenseless. It's going to be meek, and it's going to be mild, and it's not going to be able to kick. Not at all. Because Jesus never did. He did what his Father wanted at all times. That's the place, brethren, we've got to be before we can say we are a hundred percent the Lord's. And it doesn't take as long as you would imagine. Not if you're open to the Holy Spirit and open to correction from one another. Verse 10. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. How thrilling. If the Lord is disciplining you, you are heading towards holiness with him. There is no quick way out of this. You are going to sin as a believer. Why? Because you've got an old sin nature inside of you. You are going to sin. But God, through Romans 8.28, which says all things work to the good, uses that sin to bring you into line with his holiness. He will use his discipline to reveal his holiness inside. And each one of us is going to change from one degree of glory to another. We see one another changing as the Lord deals with areas of our lives. And it's the most thrilling thing. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Sometimes when I talk about chastening, I can see everyone smiling. 
It's not good. It's not hard. If you can smile through the chastening, God will increase the chastening. He will. Just like your son. You hit him and he, he smiles back at you and you're angry. <laughs> Next time he's not going to smile. It's hard, but it's worth it all. You see, Edith Piaf saying, I, have, I regret nothing. And we can come to the place where we can say, I regret nothing. Having reached the end, I regret nothing. Lord, it's been worth it all. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you because you've dealt with me in this way. And it's so hard. You know, the Jews sometimes used to wear a little bottle with their tears round their neck. You know. And how precious. Because they could say, these tears represent areas of my life that the Lord has dealt with. I wish I'd kept all mine. Actually, there'd be buckets <laughs> by this time. But it's so lovely. Because he's treating me as a son. He loves me so much. And he loves you so much. Let's just finish it. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, when you've obeyed it, when you've submitted to it, when you've given in to God, and I like the term submission, it's a wrestling term, give in, afterwards, it yieldeth the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, for the rest of your life, you can kick and you can kick and you can kick. You will never have peace. You will never have joy in your life. You'll know odd moments and then you'll be plummeted down again. If you are exercised by the discipline of the Lord, you are going to know peace and holiness spreading forth in your life. Now, there are two terms for Christians in the Bible. Two terms I'm going to take anyway. We have a carnal Christian and we have a spiritual Christian. There's one and the other. A carnal Christian and a spiritual Christian. A carnal Christian is one who's out of fellowship with the Lord. Someone that God says, I can't walk with you because we're not agreed. You think that's alright. And I say it's a sin. I'm sorry. You've got to change. You see, God is immutable and he never changes. So it's not he, him that's got to change. You have got to change. That's a carnal Christian. A spiritual Christian is one who is in fellowship with God, enjoying the presence of the Lord at all times. And this is the thing. A carnal Christian often becomes as bad and sometimes even worse than unbelievers. Now, legalistic believers find that hard to believe. But we can understand it very quickly. To help us understand it, I've drawn two diagrams on the board. The first one, uh, you're used to these, of course, if you were in Bible study number three and four, I think it was, in which this was dealt with. The first one shows an unbeliever. An unbeliever has a body, a soul. Notice his spirit is dead. It died in Adam. And he's got no sin nature. There he is. He's got three parts. To him, body, soul, and an old sin nature. And his spirit is dead. Here's our believer. He's got a body. He's got a soul. He's got a spirit. His spirit has come back to life. That's what we mean by being born again. Your spirit, which was dead, has come back to life. And he's got an old sin nature. Now, a spiritual believer is one who is moving by the spirit. An unbeliever can never move by the spirit. You see, the natural mind, says Corinthians, cannot receive the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. 
And here is the unbeliever. He hasn't got a spirit. This person, the believer, can be spiritual. But he can also be carnal. You see, the unbeliever lives under the direction of three things. His body, his soul, and his old sin nature. And if you are a carnal believer, you live by exactly the same things. Your body, your soul, and your old sin nature. That's why, if you're out of fellowship with God, you are as bad as any unbeliever that there could be. In fact, you're a bit worse. Do you know why? Because you're punished by God. The unbeliever never is. Why? Because he's not a son of God. You see? Uh, people who talk about the fact that we're all brothers in this world, the universal brotherhood of man, they don't know what they're saying. It means that God disciplines all members of the human race, and he doesn't. This is why a believer, when he's out of fellowship, is as bad as an unbeliever, and in fact, he can be worse. You see? Now, how many Christians do you know who've been away from the law for, say, two or three years? And then they come back to the Lord. And they have testimonies galore. How the Lord delivered them from terrible darkness. And yet they were believers when they went into it. They were believers at the beginning. They fell away from the Lord. And they're believers at the end. They have become terrible. Now let's turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we begin verse 1 to verse 3. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning verse 1. And this is a snorter of a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. They had done a lot wrong. In fact, they were getting really out of hand. And Paul said, it's about time someone put their foot down. And so he did. He wrote this letter to them. And I, brethren could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He said, you see, I couldn't come with spiritual information to you because you are so out of fellowship, you didn't know what I was talking about. You hadn't been dealt with by the Lord. You hadn't submitted to the Lord. So I've got to come like, a, like I'm dealing with a baby with you. I've got to come again laying the foundations. Verse 2. I have fed you with milk, and not with meat. The meat, of course, are the deep things of the word of God. But no, the milk, he's on. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. He said, before this time, you couldn't, up to this time, you couldn't take what I was going to say to you. And you can't now. In other words, you haven't grown one iota since I last saw you. That's what he's saying. And what a rebuke for a church. What a rebuke for a minister to come to a church one year, and two year, years later visit that church, and they're in as bad a state as they were before. And this is the Corinthian church. <clears throat> Verse 3. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying <clears throat> and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal? And walk as men. And by saying walk as men, he means walk as unbelievers. He's saying you are just like unbelievers. That's what he's saying in your, your, uh, the way you are living. You see? And, and he goes on to say, please get back into fellowship. Then the life of Jesus will start showing forth in you. Now, all of us are going to sin. All of us have an old sin nature. But 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Therefore, 
it's as easy as confessing that sin. Now, there are two words that I've written up. The first one is the word repent. And we've got to know these two words. The first one is the word repent. That's it in Greek, metanoio. I'll spell it uh, in English, M-E-T-A, meta, N-O-E-O. And it's from two Greek words. The first one is a Greek word meaning to change. We get the word metamorphosis from it. You see, to change shape. The second one is mind, is the word for mind. And so repent means to change your mind. Now that's odd, because I was taught when I was first saved, it meant crying. I was taught it meant weeping and weeping and weeping. And many Christians are very confused about this. This word has no emotional connotations whatsoever. In fact, I can remember uh, in my first year of being saved, I actually tried to get myself crying about my sins. I spent time trying to make myself cry about my sins. And God warns us against hypocrisy. And sometimes I used to think, try and get myself really miserable. It used to take me sometimes half an hour to get one little dribble from my eye. And that, I felt, was repentance. When you are a babe in Christ, God has given you a way to get into fellowship. Repent. You've got to change your mind. As you go on and become a mature believer, you will really cry over your sins. But it's not required of you when you're a baby. God has made it so easy. All you've got to do is to change your mind about that sin. To say, God, I thought that that was all right. But I've changed my mind. It's wrong. And the word repent means to change one's mind. You'll notice, by the way, the Jews, the gospel to the Jews was always repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. The gospel message to the Gentiles was, believe and be baptized. What he said to the Jews was, change your mind and be baptized. To the Gentiles he said, believe. Now why should there be a difference? Simply because the Jews were looking for the Messiah. They expected a Messiah who would come and join them against their fight against Rome. And John said to them, Repent. You have to change your mind about the Messiah. You've got to realize he's not coming politically. He's coming to die for your sins. And if you believe that, then be baptized. The Gentiles can't repent because they didn't know anything about the Messiah. So they're told to believe. And there's the difference. Now the word repent there certainly doesn't mean weep and weep and weep about the Messiah. It means to change your mind. To see he's coming for a different purpose. You see? Actually, in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, and I'm not going to go through this verse, but it talks about the two words in the same verse. It talks about sorrow and repentance. Uh, actually, we'll begin verse 9. Now, in this second letter, he's writing about his first letter. <coughs> he's saying, I'm glad I made you sorry. You see, they've written back saying, we were just heartbroken. We were just cut to the quick, and it was terrible. And so here he expresses his views. Now I rejoice. Not that ye were made sorry. I wasn't, I'm not rejoicing, he says, because you started crying and weeping about what I've written. But that ye sorrow to repentance. 
you see? He's saying that they weren't crying and weeping just for nothing. They sorrowed and it made them change their mind about their own spiritual condition. Many Christians weep and weep and weep and it's self-pity. It's self, 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 self-pity all the time. They can't forget themselves. They weep and weep and weep and it's self-pity. That's not repentance. It's sorrow. Godly repentance... Sorry, godly sorrow produces repentance. You see, it's when you cry and cry and cry and then change your mind about what you've been doing. That's what God's after. You see? There's another word for repenting with tears, by the way, and it doesn't mean to change your mind. It doesn't mean that at all. Now it goes on. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. In other words, to those who are saved, a godly sorrow produces repentance. You see, repentance is different from sorrow. That's the point. And if you weep and weep and weep, God is doing it, allowing you to go through it to change your mind. Not that you might come out the other side saying, oh, I feel much better now, I've had a good old cry, and then start doing the same old things. It's not that, you see. And we as Christians have to be honest with ourselves. Are you crying because you're full of self-pity? Or are you crying because God is dealing with you and you're going to change your mind? Well, that's the first one, that's repentance. The second one, I understand, it's homologio. Homologio. I spell it H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O, homologio. And it's the word confess. And the word confess, again, has no emotional connotations. It's the word used in the court of law. You see? Do you confess that you are so-and-so and so-and-so? And you say, I do. It doesn't mean to say that you sit there crying about it, saying, yes, I, I confess, I am R.D.G. Price. I do confess it and I'm sorry and I wish I'd never done... It doesn't mean that at all. It means to confess. It means to say, yes, I am. You see? Let's turn to 1 John 1, 9 and have a quick look at, look at it. This is the key. 1 John 1, 9. Actually, I think we'll begin with 1 John 1, 8. It sounds different, so it's nice. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you are saying there is none no sin nature inside of you, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's not right. There are some people who believe in uh, perfection. They believe a Christian can reach a point where he can never sin, where he will never sin. And I'm afraid it's not true. Once the old sin nature is inside of you, it doesn't leave you until your death. Then it leaves you. And then you will know perfection. But until that time, you will still be cranking out sin all the time. In fact, Paul in Romans 7 says, I don't understand it. He says, the very things I do, I can't understand. He says, here am I, born again, full of the Holy Spirit, yet all I do is sin. He says, it's a puzzlement to me. I can't understand it. And then he goes on and he describes the old sin nature. He says, you see, it's, I don't do it. It's sin inside of me that does it. It's your old sin nature inside of you that cranks out these sins. Right, so you are going to sin. That's the first one. And verse 9 comes in immediately after. So you're going to sin. What's God done about it? Here it is. If, 
And it's the third class condition. Perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. It's up to you. If you will, you're all right. If you won't, expect discipline. It's coming any time. If we confess, and that means name your sin, it does not mean weep about it. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You name every sin you know, and the second part of it, and cleanses from all unrighteousness, deals with all the sins you've forgotten to mention. So that finally, after claiming 1 John 1 9, confessing your sins to God, you end up a spiritual Christian and in fellowship. And you get up and immediately you've sinned again. So what do you do? Well, you confess it again. And so for a whole hour, you sin a hundred times. That's all right as long as you confess 1 John 1 9 101 times. You are as spiritual at the end as you were at the beginning. Now many uh, Christians think that you have to gain your spirituality through good works. But it's by grace. It's by 1 John 1 9. Confessing your sin to God. Confess, it's dealt with. Confess, it's dealt with. Confess, it's dealt with. Now it's as easy as that. Now that's fantastic. Again, I can remember times getting on my knees and saying, God, I've just sinned again. I hate it. I'll never do it again. <laughs> well, God forgave me that sin, but now I was out of fellowship for two lies that I committed. <laughs> One, I didn't hate the sin. I loved it. Secondly, I would do it again, and I knew I would. You know, And yet, Christians who are told not to live by their emotions are all the time being inspired to live by their emotions. You see? That you have to, every now and again, walk out the front to uh, make sure a sin is forgiven in your life. You see? God didn't make it as difficult as that. God gave you 1 John 1 9. All you have to do is confess it. There's only one person you can confess to, and it's not to an evangelist. It's to Him. He has given you a pocket... Uh, a, a pocket device that you can always carry around with you to check that you're always in fellowship with God. And it's 1 John 1 9. And then it's 1 John 1 9. And all you do, what do you do? You've fallen over again. You pick yourself up and you brush yourself off and you start all over again. And you brush yourself off using 1 John 1 9. Confess your sin. And confess it. And you do it again. Confess it. And you do it again. And confess it. You are as spiritual in the end as you were at the beginning. And you will find that God will soon have that sin dealt with in your life. You know, I was taught that one had to labour with a sin. You had to spend time with that sin. And I found that I, I spent time with that sin, praying about it. I looked at it from every angle. And it got bigger, and it got bigger, and it got bigger. You see, it's just like gardening. You spend a lot of time on the plant. If you're a good gardener, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You forget it. It will soon die, unless it's a weed. You see? But that's true of sin. God did not mean you to sit under your sins. He meant you to get rid of your sins. How many of us have spent years out of fellowship with God because of a sin that we felt was blocking our life? God died on the cross for that sin. And therefore, he doesn't want you labouring under it. He wants you to cast your burden on the Lord. And that's through 1 John 1, 9. The word confess, it actually says, name it. In fact, what it's saying is here, you don't actually have to say, God, forgive me. It's a good thing to say that, but you don't actually have to say it. All you have to say is, Lord, here's a sin, and name your sin. And it's forgiven. 
Why? You've recognized the fact it's sin. And therefore you are now walking in agreement with God. Because God says it's sin. And now you're saying it's sin. And you're fine. And off you go in fellowship. You see? You forget the things that lie behind. And you press on. Many Christians are bogged down by their sins. They can't raise themselves above their sins. That's not correct. God knew that you would have these weaknesses. He knew that you'd have problems. That's why he gave you a simple way out of it. It's 1 John 1, 9. Hallelujah. As you go on with the Lord, however, you'll love him more and you'll hate the sin more. But you can't go on with the Lord unless you're in fellowship with him. 1 John 1, 9 gets you in fellowship. And you will go on with the Lord. No, isn't that simple? It's as easy as that. And we're, tonight we're going to have a look at... Uh, a passage which deals with just that point. Would you turn now, please, to Luke 15. I think we are now ready for three parables. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Luke 15. Now, the word lost here has nothing to do with salvation. In fact, um, at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, the father says, my son which was lost, which was dead. Now, he wasn't dead, and he wasn't lost, but you see, he was cut off from his father. So to his father he was lost, you see. Now, let's uh, take it from this. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. Jesus comes face to face with two groups of Jews. And they're both Jews. Here's the first group. The publicans and the sinners. A publican was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collector. They were the lowest of the low in the Jewish society. Do you know why? Because they had sided with the Romans. And everyone hated them. They hated them and hated them and hated them. Who were the sinners? The sinners was, were those who were not doing what the law said they ought to do. The law said you had to do this sacrifice, do that sacrifice, keep the Sabbath. They weren't doing it. They were sinners. They were breaking the law. Well, there we are. That's one group. And Jesus meets them. He also, however, however, meets another group. Here they are. I don't know which, really, he prefers of these two groups. They're both terrible. The next ones are the Pharisees and the scribes. These are religious men. They are thoroughly religious. You see, they're not saved. They're religious. These were the men that attacked Jesus more than any other group, the scribes and the Pharisees. They hated Christians. They fought against them all the time. Now, um, the one thing we can say about them is that they did keep the law. They prayed seven times a day. They went to the temple three times a day. They did all the sacrifices that were necessary. In fact, as far as the law was concerned, they were blameless. Uh, don't turn to this, but in Philippians 3... 5 and 6. It's worth getting that down. Paul describes himself before he was saved. He says, I was a Pharisee. And he says, as unto the law, I was blameless. In other words, he kept the law completely. He wasn't saved, but he kept the law absolutely to the dot. So here you've got two groups of, of uh, Jews. Right? Two groups of Jews. You've got one group who keep the law. As far as the law is concerned, they're all right. You've got a second group who don't keep the law. And Jesus is going to eat, uh, eat and meet 
the second, going to eat with and meet with the second group. You see, the sinners, the publicans. They're the group that he's going to meet with. He knows just how rotten the Pharisees and the scribes are. He knows that they're going to give him more trouble than anyone else. You see? So, here he comes. He's going to uh, speak with the publicans and the sinners. Verse 3. And he spake this parable unto them. Now, what's a parable? If I asked you what a parable is, you'd probably be able to give me some idea, but not exactly. The word parable actually means this. It means to take something and to lay it aside alongside something else. To take something and to lay it aside something else. It's an odd thing for a parable to mean. You thought it was a story, didn't you? The word parable, I'll repeat it, means to take something and to lay it aside alongside something else. The, we get the word parallel from the, the, a similar word, you see. To take something and to lay it aside something else. Now, what, was, what did you lay aside what? Jesus told a story which you were to lay aside some of the truth that you knew. And the story would explain the truth. Do you see what I mean? That's what the parable is all about. It's explaining a bit of truth to us. Now many people get it wrong because they lay the story by the wrong bit of truth. And then they have to either ignore bits in the parable or they start moving it round a bit, you know. And they ignore vast chunks and they say, oh well, it doesn't matter about that bit. You know, and these men always begin their talks by saying, one danger with parables is you mustn't take them too literally. And that means that they've put it along the wrong side of truth and they're going to move it round. And the one that most people do it to is the uh, ten virgins. Oh boy. The things that people get, the parable of the ten virgins, to mean, is incredible. You can always tell whether it's truth. Do you have to move it round and squeeze it in and knock that bit off there in order for it to line up? If you are, you haven't got the right bit of truth. You see? All the parables were there to demonstrate things, to make them easy to us. And now we've got three parables. Jesus is using the occasion of righteous Jews under the law and out of fellowship Jews under the law. Neither groups were saved. But he's going to use this to show us something about Christians who are in fellowship with God and Christians who are out of fellowship with God. And the first story is about some sheep. In the Bible, the word sheep always refers to believers. Now, some people take this parable to mean salvation. You see, let's read it through and we'll see why it can't be salvation. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. There's the first. Now, some people take this as being salvation. I wouldn't argue with that, really, as long as the gospel goes forth. But actually, it is taking it completely wrong. You see, uh, sheep always means believers. If this were about salvation, it would be a man who had 99 sheep and one goat. Now it would. Or, if you were being strict, if, and it was about salvation, he'd have one sheep 
that was in the fold, and 99 were scattered. Because you see, there are very few saved people on the face of the earth. Most are not. But in fact, it says, notice carefully, what man of you having a hundred sheep? These belong to the man. Now, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to God. Marvellous. In fact, you belong in such a way that he's put a deposit down on you. It's called the earnest of the Spirit. He's put a little deposit and he's going to claim you later. You see? Now, here are a hundred sheep. They're all together. They're sheep. They're all believers. But one of them decides, sorry, I've had enough of this group, this flock. You all follow the flock. I'm going on. And off he wanders. You see? Off he goes down the path. And soon he's lost to the sight of the shepherd. Now what does the shepherd do? Well, there we are. One has wandered off. That's a Christian, by the way, getting out of fellowship with God. The rest are in fellowship with the Lord. I hope that's true of us. 99% of us are in fellowship and the 1% are out of fellowship. I hope that's true. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be tragic if the, he left the 15 and went searching for the 85? <laughs> It'd be terrible. You see? Well, now what's he do? He leaves the 99 and he goes searching for the one sheep that's lost. You see? Lost in the sense that he's out of sight of the master. He's out of fellowship with the shepherd. That's the point. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, if perhaps he will, perhaps he won't, it's up to the sheep. You see? Uh, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. Sometimes, you know, we as believers in fellowship feel as if we're in a wilderness experience. But what is God doing? God has left us in the wilderness to pray. And we know that by our staying together and praying together, his Holy Spirit is free to go out and seek those Christians who are out of fellowship and also going out to preach the gospel, which is wonderful. And he goes out. And what happens? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Notice, the sheep didn't find the Lord. The Lord found him. The moment you get out of fellowship, God comes along and he's desperate to get you, have you back in fellowship. That's why this Bible study is here tonight. God is so desperate to get us all back into fellowship. Through 1 John 1, 9. And he lays it on his shoulders. And... Uh, and when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. His friends and neighbours, the angels in heaven, you see? Marvellous. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, one sinner that changeth his mind, more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. If you get back into fellowship, God rejoices. The whole of heaven rejoices. I love that uh, verse 7 when applied to non-Christians as well. Because I do believe when a, a non-Christian is saved, there's joy in heaven. Absolute uproarious joy. Of course there is. But how thrilling to know that when you're out of fellowship and you come back into fellowship, there's also joy in heaven. You see? If you're in fellowship, you don't have to change your mind. You're in fellowship. If you're out of fellowship, what about it then? Changing your mind. Now, in case that wasn't enough, he comes on to a second parable. In other words, this is a story, you've got to lay it alongside the truth, and it will explain this a bit better. Verse 8. Either, what woman having ten pieces of silver, she owns the pieces of silver. She owns them. You see, they're hers. These are believers. And beautiful silver. 
lovely, ten pieces of silver. If she lose one piece, doth light a candle, that's the Holy Spirit, and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And there's another story as well. I think that one is a nice one to use for salvation as well. You see, but you, but you have to fiddle it a bit, actually. You have to say, well, of course God didn't own in everyone, really. It was, they were the children of the devil until they believed in the Lord. Now we come on to the piece de resistance of Luke 15. <laughs> Verse 11. This is called the story of the prodigal son. We saw last week a very important principle. Once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. Galatians 3.26 says that, for we are all children of God by faith in him. You see, by faith you are a child of God. And it says, and this is Jesus, and he said, a certain man had two sons. The man is God the Father, and he's got two sons. You are a son of God by faith in Christ Jesus. This is talking about a Christian. In fact, two Christians. You see, it's not talking about one non-Christian and one Christian. It's talking about two Christians. They are sons of their father. And the important thing to know is, of course, once you're a son, you can't get out of it. As I said last week, it doesn't matter how bad you are, you are still your father's son. It doesn't matter what you do to yourself, you can change your name, you can go into a different country, you can change your looks, you can change everything about yourself, but you are still your father's son, no matter what you do. And that's true of believers too. You get out of fellowship with God, you can renounce God, you can apparently say, I'm no longer a Christian, I've changed my spots, yet you are born again inside if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a shock you are going to have when you die. You're going to be face to face with the Lord, you're going to be in heaven, but no rewards. And Jesus will say, foolish man, you've wasted and squandered a life which could have been used for me. Oh, tragic. That's why we have got to be in fellowship, actually, with the Lord. Because out of fellowship you do not produce for God. It's hard, it's a very hard thing to witness for the Lord if you're out of fellowship. It won't be effective. And the younger of them said to his father, I love the fact it's the younger. Because sometimes this happens to uh, children in the Lord, immature believers. And the younger said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Father, you've done so much for me, I claim it as my own. And he divided unto them his living. Now notice what it says. It wasn't just the younger son who got his living, it was both of the sons. And these are the, the things that we get as being Christians. The joy, unspeakable. And full of glory. The peace that passes understanding. The presence of the Holy Spirit inside. These have been given to us. They've been divided to us. We've all got them in this room. If you squander them, they're going to vanish. That's the message of the prodigal son. You've got them at the moment, but they've got to be used for your father. You see? Some uh, Christians, you know, who've led very lonely lives, come into uh, the, the body... And immediately they find friends. Their personality changes as they go on. Suddenly they find people who love them, who want them. And 
they think, perhaps some of them, after a time, Oh, fine, I'm now fine. Good. Goodbye, body. And off they go. They're back in six months. And they're as bad as they ever were. You see, we need to be together. God has given us these things to be used in his service. In his service. So, notice that. It changes from him to them. And he divided unto them his living. And what happened? And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. By the way, I won't list his sins to you in case I miss one of yours. I'd hate you to think that your sins didn't take you out of fellowship. In fact, he, let's, let's assume that he did every sin that you do because that demonstrates the principle. Right? He went into a far country, and there he wasted his substance. He's wasted everything the Lord has given him on himself. You see? It's useless. And what happens? Well, discipline occurs. How does the discipline happen here? And by the way, if you're a believer, you will be disciplined by the Lord to bring you back. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Now that's discipline. There it is. Contentment is what the Christian should have. Want is what he should never have. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the peace that a Christian should have inside. Right, so here's the discipline that begins. Verse 15. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. This man he joined himself to sent him into the fields to feed swine. You can tell he had gone out of his country. This is a far country. You see, the Jews never wanted pigs about. They thought that the pig was an unclean animal. I once made a mistake, actually, when talking about Joseph and his brethren. And I was describing their meal that they were having and saying, you can just imagine they're sitting around eating pork pies. But it's not true. They hated pigs, they hated pork, and they thought it was wrong. So here, this Jewish lad is reduced to the level where he is actually doing something that no self-respecting Jew would do. He's looking after pigs. Looking after pigs. Can you see? He's not only like an unbeliever, he's worse than an unbeliever. And it's true of Christians. You will do things that you wouldn't have dreamt of doing, that the world will think is awful. That's why you have to stay in fellowship. It's very important. Here he is, looking after the sheep. And he would fain, that fain means desired, he would have liked to have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. He was so hungry, he wanted to just eat the pig's swill. And no man gave unto him. He wanted to eat the pig's swill. But the swineherd said, Do you think I'm wasting good swill on you? The man who owned the pigs thought that the pigs were of more value than this fellow. This man is way down on his luck, to use an expression. Do you see, it's terrible. The man who keeps the pigs won't waste good swill on him. He's really out of fellowship. You see, I know some Christians in this state. I do. And of course, legalistic believers say, you see, they were never saved. They were saved. They were, and they still are saved, too. They are just terribly out of fellowship and being disciplined by God. They'll be back. They'll be back. Just wait and see. You see, because they're sheep, and sheep always come home, eventually, wagging their tails behind them, too. <laughs> and no man gave unto him. Verse 17. 
And when he came to himself, that's repentance. To come to himself, he changed his mind. Suddenly, he changed his mind. He said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? Terrible. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. That's confession. He repents and he confesses. That's 1 John 1, 9. Then he adds uh, something. And I am no more worthy to be called thy son. That was unnecessary because you see you're never worthy to be God's son. Never. You never can be. This is his emotions being stirred again. He wants to, you know, really become low before his father. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And that is ridiculous. Is ridiculous because of course he can never be a servant. He's a son. You can't make a son into a servant. He's your son. Right? And so what happens? And he arose and came to his father. But when he was a great, yet a great way off, his father saw him. God is omniscient. He knows everything. While he was yet over the horizon, God saw him. His father saw him. What did he do? He wasn't waiting for any apologies. He loved that son. You see? He rushed out. His father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I want you to notice one thing. The son hadn't come home because he was sorry. The son wasn't sorry. The son was hungry. That's all. If he'd had more money, he would have stayed longer in the country. You see, he didn't feel a bit sorry about what he'd done. Not a bit about it. He was just starving, hungry. God, when you are a young believer, has allowed you to come back into fellowship on the basis of 1 John 1 9 and nothing else. Oh, it's thrilling. Of course, the father would have been thrilled if the son had said, I'm... I just want to weep about what I've done. That's a sign of maturity. This son, no sorry, this son had just run out of money. He might even say to his father, of course I wouldn't have been back, you know, but I've run out of money, you see. There we are. He was just starving hungry. What, did it affect his father? No, not at all. The father loved the son. It was grace. This is what grace is all about. It's undeserved merit. And he came back. The father ran out to greet him. I'm thrilled to see you. I love you. You're home. Oh, praise God. And God does that when we get back into fellowship. That's why this says joy all around the place. That's why there's such fantastic joy all around the place. And the son begins, said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And he's about to go on and say, Make me as one of thy hired servants. But the father interrupts him. I'm not listening to that, he says. You've confessed that's good enough for me. And he interrupts. And his father says, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe. The best robe, not the second best. The best. I, if he were my son, would perhaps give him the second best. But God loves him fantastically. You see, he loves the, the Christian out of fellowship. And the robe, of course, speaks of new righteousness. Bring forth the best righteousness. This is the new righteousness. Joshua, the high priest, was clothed in new garments. So the moment you c claim 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins, you get new righteousness upon you. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. That's the sign of authority. You then get the stamp of God's authority. And last of all, the shoes on his feet. That's your ministry. You can then go ahead with your ministry, preaching the gospel. You see? And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. 
Now there's the first son. The first son goes out of fellowship and he comes back. The second son had been in fellowship all this time until this point. He then gets out of fellowship himself. If you are a legalistic believer, you will find it very hard when someone gets back into fellowship. You're saying, honestly, I've led such a good life all my life. It's about time that God bless me. And then you see some person who's been out of fellowship, he comes back into fellowship, is thrilled with the Lord, overflowing with everything Jesus has given him. And a legalistic believer finds that hard to swallow. I've struggled, I've worked for the ministry all these years, and you come back, you get all this. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, when we see others being blessed and we're not being blessed. But we need grace in our hearts. Hallelujah. It's thrilling. And then the elder son was in the field. Look, he was working hard. This is a good lad. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. And it should say, and he was thrilled to pieces. He was glad because his brother was home. Oh, my brother, I'm thrilled to see you. I love you. Not, not so. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, entreated him. That's grace again. The father goes out to the son here. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. By the way, it never says anything about that. He didn't know anything about it. This is slander. He put the worst interpretation upon it. You see, legalistic believers always do that. Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Hallelujah. It's so thrilling. That's grace. 1 John 1 9 says that if you are out of fellowship with God, confess your sin and your back, and God welcomes you with open arms. There is no sin too big to stop him welcoming you back with open arms. Therefore, there is no excuse for you to be out of fellowship. Claim 1 John 1 9, pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and start all over again. Hallelujah. Amen.